with me this morning. We're going to uh, try to introduce uh, a study through the book of Amos. As you know, I'm trying to work my way through the minor prophets. Uh, I feel like I will probably pause along the way uh, and go to some other text that will sort of shore, shore you up uh, in order to hear those. But thank you for being here this morning. Uh, it's good to see uh, Marty Lyles with us after his surgery so quickly and up and around. Uh, he and Kelly as well just asked for your prayers to remember Drake Lyles. We had mentioned him in our, uh, their son in our prayer list, but he'll be going off to Highway Patrol School, which is a 13-week training course and very physical and, and mental involved in that as well. Uh, we trust that he'll do fine in that, but uh, certainly our hearts join theirs in concern of, uh, and Marty knows firsthand the dangers on the highway as a highway patrolman, so we want to remember him in our prayers uh, as well. Uh, this morning will be more maybe an introduction. Uh, my heart is uh, so full. I've been, I must have read through Amos at least 50 times already. Uh, I'm beginning to think that I might be committing it to memory. Um, but as I've been thinking this week, uh, all of the minor prophets uh, came uh, sometimes to the nation of Israel, sometimes to Judah, sometimes to the surrounding nations uh, in times of uh, what generally would seem to be times of prosperity. Uh, most often they came with a clear declaration of the holiness and righteousness of God and the accountability of all humanity before that God. Uh, I'm not, I don't know how internet savvy you are, I'm not that much anyway, but uh, this really rung home, uh, rang true to me uh, this week through some events that I noticed online, but also as I was reading the prophets uh, as well, uh, you may, uh, some of you may have heard, but I think the name was Anthony Oliver, uh, but he, he published, self-published a song on the internet uh, which was called Rich Men North of Richmond, uh, and it was a serious indictment uh, of political elitism in our country, and it was uh, whether you agree with the lyrics or not, and I wouldn't, if you're, if you're uh, averse to profane language, you probably wouldn't want to listen to it, but it was really a guttural cry of frustration and pain and anger in regards to a common man's attempt to try to live his life and provide for his family while continually being pressed down. And what fascinated me more was the comments uh, after the video uh, of him singing this song, uh, and they were from all over the world. It wasn't just America. There were Ethiopia and Asia, Canada, uh, all other countries, Europe, some from England, and how that resonated, this ideal of being oppressed by the, by the wealthy and powerful elite politically most of all, but uh, the elite in society in general. And it seems to be a, it struck a chord across the world. And I couldn't help but thinking about how the prophet's message came to bear whenever they went into these areas and they proclaimed the word of the Lord. And most often it involved the very same things that he's crying out about and enraged about. Oppression, injustice, uh, exploitation, uh, the complete disregard for human life. And it also strikes me in the response that he got from this from some corners uh, where those power sources are. And, they, and they, were, they were decrying him and labeling him as a far-right extremist and 
and, and categorizing them, thus to dismiss what he says to some right-wing group. But here's where my heart was when I heard that. I felt this way. Every person in power and every elite in this nation ought to listen very carefully to what he's expressing in that song. Because those sentiments are just under the surface of a people in our nation today and have been around the world for many decades of a people who have almost had their feel of the oppression. We've been okay with looking after mine and my own and my land and feeding my family. As long as it doesn't affect me directly, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to shake my head at it and go on and keep my head down. But more and more we see oppression rising and, and the disturbances rising to the point of people can't keep their head down anymore. It's starting to affect them. And so it was in Old Testament Israel. And, and so, it, so were the circumstances in which Amos comes to speak to the northern tribes, the ten tribes in northern Israel. One of the interesting passages before this man that I'm talking about sang his song somewhere, I think it was actually in North Carolina. But before he sang that song, he, he broke down and you could see he was emotionally moved. And this is what he quoted. He pulled out his Bible and folded it over like this and cited Psalm 37. And this is what he said. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him for he sees his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil, and in the days of famine they will have abundance. But the wicked will perish, and the enemies of the Lord will, like the glory of the pastors, they will vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away." That's a pretty sobering passage of scripture to read before he sang the song that he had written as well. But if you get a chance and if you can tolerate a little bit of profane language in his expression of his frustration, I recommend adults that you hear that because it speaks to what's under the surface and what's in the heart of many, not only in America, but around the world. So we're looking at Amos and I couldn't help but think when Amos came into the region of northern Israel and later on we know in chapter 7 that the priest of their false religion confronts him and he says to him, I'll be prophesying here. You, you go home to Judah and do your prophesying down there. This is the king's court. This is where you've come to the home of the elite. And we don't hear such vulgar and profane speaking in these circles of power. So you go home. And I wondered if, if to the common people the prophecies of Amos didn't land on, on them like this song of this gentleman landed on me. Because he was speaking the song of their heart in some ways. They were frustrated and oppressed, but no one dared speak out. There were injustices all around, but they dared not confront the, the, the citadels of power lest they be killed even. 
But I had to wonder whether or not their hearts resonated with what Amos was having to say. So let's read beginning in chapter 1. I want to read into chapter 2 as far as verse 3 and then say verse 4 and following if we come back tonight. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa, which he envisioned in visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. He said, The Lord roars from Zion. From Jerusalem he utters his voice. And the shepherds' pasture grounds, pasture grounds mourn, and the summit of Carmel dries up. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Because they threshed Gilead with implements of sharp iron, so I will send fire upon the house of Haziel, and it will consume the citadels of Ben-Hadad. I will also break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the valley of Avon and him who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden. So the people of Aram will go exile to Kir, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three grand transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Because they deported an entire population to deliver it up to Edom, I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza and it will consume her citadels. I will also cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will even unleash my power upon Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines will perish, says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four I will not revoke its punishment. Because they delivered up an entire population to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send fire upon the walls of Tyre, and it will consume her citadels. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Because he pursued his brother with the sword, while he stifled his compassion, his anger also tore continually, and he maintained his fury forever. So I will send fire upon Timnon, and I will consume the citadels of Bozrah. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the sons of Ammon and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their borders. So I will kindle a fire on the wall of Reba, and it will consume her citadels and war cries on the day of battle and a storm on the day of tempest. Their king will go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because it burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. So I will send fire upon Moab and it will consume the citadels of Kiriath and Moab will die amid tumult with war cries and the sound of a trumpet. I will also cut off the judge from her midst. I say I, and slay all her princes with him, says the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the sobering reality that the nations and the world is accountable to you. Lord, it's easy for us to think sometimes that in the prosperity and the strength of the world and all the nations combined, it seems as though oppression and evil and wickedness will go on forever, unchecked and unabated. But Lord, history is replete 
with examples where you've intervened and called to question, called into account nations who have done such evil. These that are mentioned are such nations. And so, Father, I pray this morning that we would recognize that there is a, there is a holiness and a righteousness in you that demands accountability, even while there is long-suffering and mercy, Father, for many decades sometimes of these nations going on in their sins. And Father, help us to remember that we live in a land ourselves today where there is oppression and many of the same condemnations offered here and later on in the lives of Judah and of Israel itself, Father, that mirror the very oppressions we see in our day. And we need not think that we are somehow immune to that, not in this world and not in this nation, that you have not ceded the throne to men, that you still sit upon the throne and you are still holy and you are still righteous and all will give an account before you. So I pray that this weighs heavily for us today, that we might magnify the mercy that we have in Christ. We ask in his name, amen. I just wanted to think on a few lines in this passage of Scripture, more as introduction today than anything. But I was curious about the man God sent in this occasion. It says in verse 1, these are the words of Amos, whose name literally meant burden. Some, some translate it as the burden carrier, whether he was carrying with him the burden of the message that he was to declare or whether... Amos himself lived in a world and was burdened by the oppression that he witnessed. But he's not, he, he's, he's a man with a burden, a burden from God. It says that these are the visions that he envisioned. In other words, he was given a vision and what we're hearing now is, is what he envisioned in regards to the vision given him by God. So it's a divine vision given to Amos in which he actually envisioned what he's about to describe. This is the man God sends. It's interesting as well that he was from Tekoa, which is generally about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. Uh, I was doing a little study on Tekoa, but it's, it's really a harsh area. It's really the wilderness, the Judean wilderness. Not ironically, I think, this is where John the Baptist dwelt. In fact, it says he came out of the wilderness with his, uh, with his girdle of camel hair and eating locust and wild honey. He was a, he was a wild man. <laughs> and he, he came out of this Tekoa wilderness, this Judean wilderness, and he came into the very heart of the hypocrisy of Israel in his day. It's also where Jesus, uh, in the area where Jesus endured the temptations, a land of privation, a land that's harsh, where a, where a man would have to know specifically how to survive to even survive at all. He's a common man. He's not of the priestly class. In fact, in chapter 7, when he's confronted by Azariah, the priest of the false religion there, he says to him, I am not a prophet, neither am I the son of a prophet. Many believe that he was speaking in terms of the professional class prophet. There was Samuel even set up a school of the prophets. It was like a seminary. And basically, Amos is saying that I'm, a, I'm not a prophet. I'm not a professional prophet. I'm not a, I didn't go to the school of the prophets. I'm a generally uneducated man, a, a common man, a man of the earth, a man who lives and makes his dwelling in the wilderness. I'm a hard man. I imagine to myself, Amos had callous on his hands. It wasn't the soft hands of a cleric. 
He wasn't the gentle hands of a scholar. He had hard hands. And I imagine he was hard in his, in his disposition because you have to be that way to live in Tekoa. This is where Amos came from. Not the kind of man that would be readily accepted in the luxurious courts of the kings and their harems. This is a man in many ways that's an outsider. And this is why I think that song that I read after reading Amos all week and having heard that song, that's, that's the way it struck me. He's no prophet and he's no Amos for sure. But he's a hard man that worked hard. And his hands are calloused, I'm pretty sure. In fact, the backdrop for that video was a deer stand and two old cur dogs out in the middle of the woods. And a single guitar. He's a man of the earth, common man. And I can tell you by the reaction I saw of that on the internet, the elite didn't like the profane language of a common man. They were deeply offended by it. In fact, I think down deep, alarmed. So was the voice of Amos, I believe. Not a prophet, not a well-spoken scholarly man, probably not, a, not a, a, an eloquent man at all, but a plain-spoken man who knew how to endure the hardships of the wilderness, who worked to provide for himself, who had come all the way far north, far north of Jerusalem, all the way to Bethel in, in the northern tribes to proclaim a plain word common man from Tekoa. Notice as well that he says in verse 1 and also adds in verse chapter 7 as well, but he was among the sheep herders. He was a herdsman according to chapter 7. He was familiar, as I said, with this harsh environment. Chapter 7 adds that he was a, a, a sycamore fruit picker. I had a professor at Fruitland who said Amos was a fig picker from Tekoa. It's probably, probably derided as such. Uh, some scholars believe had proposed that perhaps he was a wealthy shepherd like Abraham and maybe had many flocks and had hands to do it. No, no, that, that's, not the, that's not the language here. In fact, in chapter 7, I followed the herds. He was among the herdsmen. I think Amos was a shepherd. He got dirty with the sheep. He rescued them from the lions and from the coyotes and from the jackals. And he, and he suffered with the sheep and he endured the harsh environment with the sheep. He was among the herdsmen and he was a fig picker. He lived off the land. Uh, this, is area, this area also was where, in the general area, where En Gedi was located. You may remember that name, but that's the oasis that David found in the wilderness to, when he was fleeing Saul. And so David escaped into this wilderness area and God was gracious to provide in Gedi a, a place of refreshing for David there. This is a shepherd who knew where the areas where the feed, the sheep could be fed and watered. Sparse vegetation, so you had to know where to take the sheep. This is the one God called. And I don't think it's by coincidence. This is the last person 
that these elite in their day wanted to hear from. It's the least respected person in their view that could possibly come before them. But it is also the people representative of the people, the main people who are suffering under their sinfulness. These are the weak people that have no recourse in the structures of power. They are the ones being run over. This is a voice from the oppressed come to town to speak to the elite. And they don't like it on either count. They don't like his background. They don't like his credentials. They don't like the fact that he speaks plainly and profanely in some ways. They don't like the fact that someone of such low stature would be tolerated in the environments of someone of such elite stature. That's exactly the world we're living in today. They don't want to hear the plain spoken truth of God's Word anymore. They don't want to hear it. And they've they secluded themselves and isolated themselves from that in our day. And the man, plain spoken, bringing the truth of God's word has no respect in their eyes. Let him, let, let him prophesy as it were down in Judah, but let him not come into the citadels of power. No, there's no room for him here. Not even in our own Congress. I remember saying a couple years ago, but I... They had invited someone to pray before Congress started their session. And at the end of his prayer, he said, a man and a woman. That's what he said. I was stunned. That's who you invite to pray in the citadels of power? Someone who has such little grasp of the, even the word amen, much less a grasp of the word of God. We are living in a culture much like Amos was confronting here. And unfortunately, we ourselves represent much the same type of people that Amos represented. Common folks just wanting to feed their families and be able to survive and worship their God in freedom. But more and more, Amos saw that the people were not able to do that. And God raised this man up to go into the halls of power, into the very jaws of the lions, as it were, to speak. As I said, he was not a prophet or the son of the prophet. This is not a professional class man. He was a man who was given as well a divine vision. In verse 1 it says that. These are the, this is the vision. Uh, he's of Tekoa, which he envisioned in the visions concerning Israel. So, so this is not just somebody who got fed up. Like the guy in the song that I'm using as an analogy this morning. That's just somebody who, who was gifted enough to put into words and song the frustration that so many are feeling. But that's very different from Amos. Amos was given a divine revelation, a divine vision, and a divine word to take to them. All the more should Amos be heard. Not only in their generation, but I say to you in our generation as well. The words of Amos are just as true of this generation as they were of his own. So he's a man with a divine vision. He was a man of Judah, again, sent, sent by God to Israel. Sent by God. That's, that's critical. Now God can send many in his providence. But it seems here the direct command upon the life of Amos was through the vision given to him that take this message and I want you to go right into the heart of the northern kingdom into Israel and I want you to proclaim plainly what I have given you to say. And so when you read this today, this is not just the words of a frustrated fig-picking shepherd from Tekoa. 
He may be the instrument, but these are the words of God. And we better take heed in our generation to understand that sometimes it may be through the vent or through the instrument of a frustrated, oppressed citizen, but it may be the providential hand of God declaring openly for a nation that it better repent. That it better repent. And that was my fear with that video this week that our leaders would ignore such an emotion and I'm not sure how far from exploding that emotion is in our culture today and I don't think any of us want to live in that world. Notice as well in verse 2 not only is it the man God sends but look at the God who sends him here. I love the first passage but he says the Lord roars from Zion. And from Jerusalem, he utters his voice. That's, in a direct, that's a direct affront to the false religion set up in Israel. You remember when the kingdom divided to keep the people in the north from drifting back to the south because the central place of Judean, Ju, uh, Judah, Jewish uh, religious practice was the temple in Jerusalem. So he set up temples, false temples, in Dan and in Bethel. And they were literally golden calves. And he said to the people, no need to go down to Jerusalem. You can worship God here. Well, he's in Israel where these false temples are. And he's declaring in the hearing of Israel, God roars from Zion. Not Baal, not Dan, not Bethel, but Zion. This is the place that he has chosen to manifest his presence among his people. That's where he roars from, not here in Israel. He speaks from Jerusalem, not from Dan and not from Bethel. And not from Gilgal, by the way, he says later in this letter. I think the emphasis there is this is the God who has covenanted with his people Israel and whom has made his presence manifest there in the temple where the ark is and where the holy of holy is. This is the God who speaks from that place, not from anywhere else by his own covenant people. And you northern tribes who have gone away from the southern tribes have cut yourself off from this God by setting up your false idols. That's the implication. That's the God who's speaking. God who takes up his dwelling place where he has determined and does not follow people around and set himself up where they determine. That's the God who speaks here, the God of Israel. Notice as well, it's the God who roars there. Uh, Amos would have been quite familiar with that. In fact, later on in this letter, he talks about does the lion roar uh, when he has his when he's got a prey, uh, or, or when he doesn't have his prey. The lion doesn't roar if he hadn't already captured something because it'll scare him off and he can't sneak up on him and pounce on him. And the imagery here is the Lord roars. He's not hiding away, waiting to pounce upon you. He is roaring from this place in Jerusalem. In, a, in essence, the, the certainty of this prophecy is accomplished there. The, the lion roars when he has taken his prey. In other words, you're already taken. And the Lord's not hiding it. The Lord's not concealing it. He's roaring this from Zion. And Amos, in some, in some ways, is the vocal cords through which the Lord is roaring now from Jerusalem. That's a powerful imagery. Amos would have understood well the roar of a lion. 
When you hear a lion roar and you have a flock of sheep, you know that either one of your sheep or some other prey has been taken. But you also know there is a lion in the midst who is on the prowl and who is making prey of all around it. He understood this imagery. So I think when Amos said to Israel, the Lord roars, that's exactly what he wanted them to understand. Before this Lord, Israel, you and all of the nations are a prey before this Lord. You are powerless to act against the Lion of Judah, as it were, or the Lord who roars as this Lion. This is the God who sent Amos. Notice in verse 2 as well, this is also the God before whom Mount Carmel itself withers at the roaring of the Lord from Zion. It says there, the shepherd's pastures, grounds mourn, and the summit of Carmel dries up. The idea there is that Carmel it was a fertile area, fairly, fairly fertile area, but at the roaring of the Lord, all that dries up. The pastures of the shepherds, far as though, though they may be, roar, dry up and wither away at the roaring of the Lord. And that's exactly what he's about to say to these nations and to Israel later on as well. That's the Lord who sent Amos. That's the Lord, that's the Lord before whom the nations, Judah and Israel, is accountable. I've said this last week and in times before, but every time I read the prophets, especially the minor prophets, I'm more deeply impacted by the reality that God is not a God to be trifled with. He is not a toy. He's not a cosmic bellboy to be healing at our every demand and our every whimmer and our every desire. He is not a God. He is not a man. He is not like us. We are created in His image, not He in ours. And He is not to be trifled with. And Amos brings the message to Israel and to the nations and to Judah that that's the sort of God who is roaring from Israel or from Judah or from Jerusalem. In chapter verses 3 all the way through chapter 2 and verse 3, just a brief look here at the nations who must give an account to God. It really is striking. One commentator has mentioned it like Amos throws the noose, throws the lasso, and it's broad. And as he works through this, Israel might have said, well, that's good, that's good preaching there, Amos. That's good preaching. But then he starts tightening it in. If you look on the map, every one of these nations almost draw a perfect circle around Jerusalem or around Israel. Nations to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west. Some, some have even uh, made, made reference to the exact geographical lining up of it demonstrates something there. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not into those, all the scholarly part of that, but there is a significance that Amos cast his net broad now. And so listen to some of these. For Damascus, which we understand as a capital of Syria. So he says later, Aram, that's another word for Syria as well. But he says, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Now that doesn't mean that Damascus sinned seven times and that's enough. It doesn't mean they sinned three times and I was being patient, but that fourth time, that's it, buddy. The, in, the imagery here. I think even Calvin commented as well, what we ought to take from this is 4 plus 3, or 3 plus 4 equals 7, and 7 is the number of completeness. In other words, they have filled up the measure of their sins. 
My goodness, if you go through their sins, they're far more than three and manifold more than four. They are almost without, without righteousness at all. They had been building up, as it were, their sins. But here's a warning for Damascus and all the other nations and for us as well. There is a place in which you will have filled up the measure of your sin. You remember Jesus rebuking the Pharisees for that, saying that they do always fill up the measure of the sins of their father. They are, it's almost as if there's a container and it's being built up in and you're filling it up and you're at number four or you're at number three and suddenly number four is overflowing. It's full. There's no more room for sin. That's the imagery here. For Damascus, they had filled up the measure of their sins. You have sinned, and you have sinned, and you have sinned, and you will sin no longer after this day. This day is the concluding of your sin. You have filled up the measure of your sin. I've said this last week, and we'll probably say it through all the minor prophets, because all make application. But if we go on in sin as a nation, and if we go on in sin even as the, those who are called the church of Christ, there is a day at which the measure of those will have been brought to full. And in that day, there will be an accountability before God. That's as certain as this prophecy, prophecy is certain for these nations. That's what this means. And notice he says as well, for, for three sins and for four I will not revoke its punishment. To me, the implication there is that its punishment has been held in reserve. It has been held back as they filled up the measure of their sins. He says later on to Israel, God sent you cleanness of teeth. God sent you this and droughts and locusts and all these things, but yet you would not return to me. It's not to say that God's merciful hand wasn't being extended all along the way, but they defied God and hardened their hearts and they were filling up the measure of their sin, even while the mercy of God was restraining his punishments. But he says to them now, for three and for four, for the completeness of your sin, Damascus, for the fullness, for having reached the measure of the fullness of your sin, I will not withhold now your punishment. The dam breaks and the punishment flows. And he gives a description of that. Notice he mentions the, the, one of the sins here, and the, maybe the preeminent sins, but he says in verse 3, because they threshed Gilead with implements of sharp iron. Some people believe they actually used a thresher, which was an instrument made of wood, weighted down, and then they would use either bronze or, bronze or steel on the bottom and then drag that grain across a rocky surface to where it would literally crush the grain and separate the wheat from the shaft. And some scholars believe they actually subjected Gilead, the citizens of Gilead, to such a torture. Others believe it is simply symbolic for how they raised Gilead with chariots, instruments of steel, and they just raced through the streets and ran down man, woman, and child, senior, young man, all of them, anyone in the way. They were just threshed as you would thresh wheat, separating the chaff from the wheat. Every one of these, by the way, if you look through these, all of these have to deal with man's inhumanity to man. Do you notice that? I mean, of all their sins, he doesn't rebuke him here for lust after wealth or greed specifically. Every one of them zeroes in to their treatment of others created in the image of God. 
For three sins and for four, I will not revoke their punishment because they thresh the people of Gilead with an instrument of iron. Complete disregard for life. No, no terms for surrender. No, no treaties to take the people in peace. No preservations of the cities and the citizens. Just outright carnage and ruthless violence towards another human being created in the image of God. I'll, I'll tell you, when I look at our nation today and the disregard for human life, I caught a clip yesterday. I think it was an 83-year-old woman stepping off a subway, gets cold, cold, knocked out cold, drops out of the thing, still part of the way in the bus, and people standing around looking at her with look like nursing outfits on. Nobody seemed to be aiding her. She's just laying on the street corner. And some guy walks up, reaches down, starts rifling through her materials. They try to stop him. He threatens them. They back away. He takes the lady's purse and walks away. Disregard for life. We're, we're doing the very things that these nations are doing. Oppressing others in their lives. Devaluing life. We're teaching our children to disregard life. We're segregating out and saying one life matters and the other life doesn't matter. We're, we're crucifying, killing children in the womb. A complete disregard for life. And every one of these condemnations going to these nations have to do with how they treat human beings. Humans. He says of them, because of this, I will send fire upon the house of Haziel and will consume the citadels of Ben-Hadad. These are Haziel and Ben-Hadad were kings. Haziel last and Ben-Hadad first. But I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Haven. Avon, that word literally means idol or vanity. I will cut off the inhabitants from the valley of vanity. And him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden, that is literally the house of delight or the house of bliss. I will cut off those who are in the valley of idolatry and the, and the ruler who lives in the house of bliss. They're all coming down. They thought they were secure forever. And all their power is scrambled. So, he says, the people of Aram or Syria will go exiled to Kerr, which is a capital city of Moab. So, that's their punishment, says the Lord. I'll go through these others more quickly. Thus says the Lord in verse 6, the three grand transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Same application. If you look through all of these, all the way down to Judah and Israel, it's the same phrasing precisely. That tells me that the implications from God is that there is, a, there is an equality in this regard in regards to expectations and punishments and God's dealing with them between the nations and Israel itself. Israel, because of its status, is not excluded from the same righteous accountability as the nations. For three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. What did they do in verse 6? Because they deported an entire population to deliver it over to Edom. They conspired together. In fact, you'll see some of that later on. But if you do some of the research, there was this back and forth a lot of times. And one time, Syria and Edom were going to try to throw off a Syrian uh, tribute and, and oppression in some ways. So, so they tried to get Judah to join with them. Judah didn't do that. Well, they attacked Judah. And while they were doing that, the Philistines came in. And they were t getting all the people up and shipping them out for money to Edom. And finally, Judah appealed to Assyria, of all people, for help. 
So Gaza just, just creeped in, took advantage of war and exploit and sorrow and sold to people, literally enslaved them to Edom and profited by the trafficking of humanity. Again, the sin is against humanity and life. Enslaving people. Some of you went to see the film recently about the sex trafficking and all those things. We're a nation full, full of that. In fact, that song that I'm mentioning, he makes one reference to uh, Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein's island and, and the controversy and the rumors in regards to what was happening there in terms of sex trafficking. That's what the Gaza, that's what the Philistines were doing. They were exploiting a situation where there was turmoil and confusion and taking the people away and selling them into slavery to Edom. And for this, he says, I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza and will consume her citadels even the capital cities here, Ashdod and Ashkelon and Ekron, God says he will unleash his power there and remove from them the scepter of power. And the remnant of the Philistines, he says, will perish. In verse 9, it was really striking for me. But thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and four, I will not revoke its punishment. Because they did the same thing. Listen, they, get, they delivered up an entire population to Eden. But then he adds something. And did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. You know where that comes from? You remember when David and David began to build his temple and the Lord forbid him to build it and, and Solomon would later build that, but David built his house. The king of Tyre at that time, Lebanon, modern day Lebanon, he, he, he was allied as it were and he would send great timbers for the construction of the house of David because he was such a great king and later on he did the same for Solomon. In fact, he actually sent artisans and craftsmen to build the temple of Solomon and Solomon's house as well. There was a covenant of brothers were brothers, were allies. You did the same thing Philistia did. You had a covenant of brotherhood and you neglected your brotherhood and you came in and exploited our suffering in the same way that Edom or Philistia did and you took the population away and sold them to Edom as well. You're involved higher in human trafficking at our expense even though you had a covenant of brotherhood with us. A brother ought to have at least not taken our people away. Another sin against humanity and life. He goes further because of this. He says he, he would send fire upon the wall of Tyre and would consume her citadels. Now he gets to Edom, verse 11, the one apparently to whom all these tr slaves were trafficked. He says of them, for three transgression of Edom and for four I will not provoke its punishment because he pursued his brother. Remember, Edom is from Esau. Esau was the brother of Jacob. So literally, they were pursuing their brother Jacob in their pursuit of Israel. In taking citizens from Israel and receiving them at the hand of the Philistines and of the, and of the Tyrians here, they were, they were exploiting their own brothers. Not only that, he says, he pursued his brother with the sword while he stifled his compassion. That's a striking phrase. It almost reminded me of Romans 1, 18 and following, suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. There was a, ought to have been a natural affection for Israel being, being Esau's uh, offspring. They were brothers, sons, as it were, of Isaac. And there ought to have been a natural brotherhood, but they suppressed that. Oh yeah, there are brothers, but hey, there's a prophet to be made here. What comes first? Prophets are brotherhood. So they forsook the brotherhood and pursued their brother with a sword. 
The Tyrians, the, the, the people from Tyre forgot about a covenant of brotherhood and an alliance with Israel. But here the Edomites forgot their very familiar relations to Israel and pursued him with a sword. You abandon your role as a brother. And when you ought to have loved and when there ought to have been an affection, you suppress that. You stifled it down so that you might make your profit at the expense even of your own brothers. Again, sinning against humanity. What would be rightfully expected among right-thinking, moral people, grounded people, caring, affectionate, merciful people, there was none to be found in Edom or any of these nations and even in some ways to Israel and Judah later on. So he says he would maintain, speaking of him, he maintained his fury forever. Verse 12, so I will send fire upon Timnon and I will consume the citadels of Bozrah. Then finally he gets to Ammon here. For three transgressions of the sons of Ammon and for four I will not revoke its punishment. Look at the inhumanity here because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their borders. He says he will kindle a fire and he speaks really harshly here. I don't think he, I, I, I'm not sure the meaning here is that they literally split open the wombs. I think the, the overall imagery is that they, even the one who would have been viewed as the weakest in society, the mother with child, the one least defensive, least be able to defend themselves, the one most vulnerable, the one in whose womb a nation's a continuance rests, you ripped her open. The idea there is the violence with which you took her out. No humanity whatsoever. Not the least mercy or compassion at all. If you wanted to kill the warriors and even take all the men down, at least you could spare the women and the children. All, all the more so the women with children in their wombs. But not you, Ammon. You slid her open and destroyed her. And for you, judgment is severe. And it is coming. He will not revoke it. He describes that in verse 14 and 15 of their kings. Then he gets to Moab in chapter 2. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Here, their great sin was they burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. There was a time when king of Edom was celebrated. In fact, you know, the people of Edom loved him. He, he made alliances and, and was expanding outward. So they had a king that they honored. But when they Moab raided or they took captivity Edom, they, they went so far in the des desecration of life to dig up the king's bones literally and burn them as a, as a statement of their superiority and of their devaluing of the life of the Edomites. You are as nothing to us. There's a rabbinic tradition that says that they, as they built the city and repaired and took over, that they took the, took the bones of the king up as an insult to the people, burned them down into lime, and added them to their mortar and laid the bricks to rebuild the city under Moabite rule. I don't know what sort of fiction that is, but there was a desecration involved of human remains. We would think it unthinkable to go to a cemetery and drag out piecemeal the bones of our beloved dead and burn them as a statement of their worthlessness. All these devaluing human life. And God calls a common man from south of, of Jerusalem, from the wilderness, and he gives him a word and he sends him north into Israel and he says, in the hearing of Israel, not necessarily these other nations, he's, he's essentially laying out 
for Israel and what he's about to do, that this is the behavior of the nations around you which surround you. And this is the, this is the essence of their sin was the, their inhumanity to one another. Their cruelty, their mercilessness, their ruthlessness in regards to human life. They have no, no respect for those created in the image of God. That's the essence of their sinfulness and their affront to a holy God who created them. And in point of application this morning, I cannot help in reading the prophets but bringing that to bear in this world today. I can't even begin to count the ways that we devalue human life. Oh, we are not so bold as yet to go out and actually with weapons murder them. But everything we do policy-wise and everything else, sometimes even the vote you cast is your own way of contributing to the devaluing of human life. I'll say this and I'll definitely probably get silence for this. But if I, if for my own heart, I'll speak for myself. To me, if I cast my vote for any candidate that, that will openly support the aborting of a live, living child in the, in the womb of its mother at any stage, I am, I am contributing to the cultural devaluing of life. No, no different from here. In fact, I'll get ahead of myself, but tonight when he gets to Judah... It's striking because he says of them, your great sin is you set aside the law of God. And I thought, well, that ain't nothing compared to killing people. Oh, yes, it is. Because that's the, that's the, that's the compass. In setting inside that, you became just like them. The only thing that's restrained you from being there already was the Word of God and some fear and trembling before God. You have cast those off and you are well on your way to becoming as ruthless as the nations around you. America, we ought to wake up. We ought to wake up. Our economic policies are devaluing life. Our, the, what we do as a nation... There are people, I'm stunned by this, but there are people whose singular issue for voting is whether or not I will prosper in the coming year. And they will elect in some cases a candidate who in every other aspect would undermine everything they hold fast to, morally speaking, so long as their bank account rises and their buying power stays the same or increases. We are no different. We are no different in that sense. In fact, we're not even Israel in the nationalistic sense. We may be God's Israel and Abraham, but we're, we're not this national Israel. I mean, we fall into the category of the Gentile nations here. And we have devalued life. We're much too refined and sophisticated to do it in such brutal ways as they were then unrestrained. But oh, we do it just the same. We do it just the same. When crime is allowed to go in the streets... Uh, one of the verses used in this passage, you'll remember, uh, Martin Luther King used and made great use of during the Civil Rights Movement, which was, let justice roll down like waters. Remember that? He drew that from the book of Amos, and I don't think he pulled it out of context. context. He looked at the world that he lived in and saw the devaluing of human life and the oppression of life and the disregard for life and freedom and all those things. And he drew out, as it were, the application of Amos and brought it to bear to 1960s America. And it's equally relevant today. 
And if you think there's not devaluing of human life, just go home today and watch news from now till you come back tonight and you will be sick at your stomach at the disregard for life. I watched the other night a PETA or a a, a SPCA commercial came on and I was almost moved to tears at the plight of a dog in a nation where there's a demand for the right to take one's child's life in the womb. I think uh, Brother DJ was sharing with me the argument that they used to use in uh, those advocates or proponents of abortions rights and all used to be that it wasn't a life in the womb and now they've changed to that altogether. Their argument now is, it's my baby, I can kill it if I want. Disregard for life. Disregard for life. This world is in a perilous place and I hate to dampen anybody's Sunday, Sunday afternoon and make your dinner hard to digest. But this is no time, this is no time for, for congeniality as a ministry tool. This is a generation where truth has to be spoken. And a lot of times it's going to have to be by people with callous on their hands. Not by the elite. They need to speak as well. And I thank God for some that are doing that. But the working folks with the callus on their hands need to go back to the scriptures, hold fast, and speak in the public forum and warn this generation because there is a judgment coming. Stand with me this morning. We're thankful as believers that our judgment has passed in Christ. I thought this morning as I was kind of reviewing my thoughts this morning, but what about the true faithful Israelite? who dared not speak and who endured the impression in the, in the northern ten tribes. And how heavy was his heart as he watched his nation fall away and as he watched them set up false altars and false gods, as he watched them sin in such ways as they were sinning all against every fiber of his moral conscience and his place with God. How heartbroken must he have been? It would have been hard to convince that faithful Israelite that now is the time to party or that now is the time to seek my own comfort and prosperity. He probably spent his every day on his knees crying that God would turn that nation around before it was too late. And maybe we ought to be doing the same. Father, thank you for your word again. Thank you for the power of your word. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes and and the eyes of this nation open to the wickedness into which we've descended. Father, we've gone so deeply now that we're, we've become that generation that calls right wrong and wrong right. And Father, we curse everything that's good and embrace and bless everything that's evil. We're already there. Father, our heart grieves as Christians as we look at our nation, a nation that was founded upon the very principles of your word and the very Judeo-Christian truth that has grounded us for so long. And having set it aside, Father, we now see the results. We have sown to the wind in many ways and are now reaping the whirlwind. And so, Lord, I pray for the Christian in this room today that we might stand up and be faithful and be strong. Lord, that we might not wither under, under assault and under persecution and under ridicule and mockery, but that we might stand firm. It is not our word that we proclaim. It is yours. And Lord, we thank you for the prophet Amos who went north to Israel to proclaim these truths. And Lord, I pray that you might raise up some Amoses in our day as well.
in these moments of invitation, Father, and reflection upon your word, I pray that you would move our hearts by your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.